Hey there, listeners. This is your host, Nick St. Fleur. Today, on our bonus content of Color Code, my colleague Issa Cueto and I spoke with Altof Sadi, a neurologist at Massachusetts General Hospital, who helped write the Physicians for Human Rights report on excited delirium, and with Brooks Walsh, an emergency medicine physician at Bridgeport Hospital in Connecticut and a member of the American College of Emergency Physicians, or the ACEP. So I think a cool way to just start off is if we could just kind of have like a simple definition, if you will, about what is excited delirium. So that's a really big question um, because it's actually not very clear what excited delirium is because it's been used as a catch-all phrase to capture a whole host of different signs and symptoms um, ranging from having a fever to having high blood pressure to having high heart rate um, to being agitated. And uh, when I say it's a catch-all phrase, it also encompasses so many different diagnoses. So you can be uh, agitated from mania, or you could be agitated from bipolar disorder, or you can be withdrawing from alcohol or withdrawing um, from any other drug or intoxicated with a drug. So it just sort of captures so many different signs and symptoms and also um, so many different potential diagnoses that it's actually really hard to pin down exactly what it is when you try to delve through the literature. And that's what we tried to do um, through the Physicians for Human Rights report and ultimately found from our research that it was not sort of a valid independent medical or psychiatric diagnosis and didn't have a clear, consistent definition. So that's my answer. I don't know, Brooks, if you have anything else. Let me try a different angle. I'm an emergency physician and I was a paramedic before Um, I was an emergency physician. I think for most emergency physicians, um, excited delirium, as we understand it, uh, was created with the 2009 uh, document put out by some people affiliated with the American College of Emergency Physicians. Um, A a lot of these discussions of, of excited delirium like to talk about this long history of identifying such a state, uh, talking about some observation by a psychiatrist 100 years ago. But really, for most of us, excited delirium uh, was described in 2009 by an American College of Emergency Physicians paper. And I think it's clear when you talk about excited delirium, those authors said there are lots of things that people can be. They can be delirious, they could be agitated, they could have a lot of diagnostic labels. But excited delirium was something unique that they were trying to Uh, set down some criteria for, which included some very specific language about how these people presented and how their condition could progress. Um, And so when we talk about excited delirium, I choose to use that document to define uh, generally what we're talking about. There's lots of other kinds of delirium that um, we can talk about all day, but excited delirium, quad excited delirium um, starts with that. From the biological and the pathophysiology side of things, how would a forensic pathologist determine that someone died from excited delirium? Are they basically just going off of the police information uh, who were on the scene 
responding? I, I will say that um, in response to our report, um, that um, sort of representatives from uh, name sort of the professional organization for medical examiners did um, say that we don't use the support of this diagnosis precisely um, for the reasons that it's very vague and difficult to establish and without a clear pathophysiological underbasis. Um, um, I don't want to speak to them, but that, that was sort of a public response that they had in response to our report. And my sense from the statements that they have made publicly is that they don't support the use of this diagnosis among um, their uh, sort of medical community. Let's talk a little bit about the different, I guess, the, the different types of delirium in that sense. You know, we've heard of delirium. What what makes excited delirium different from, I guess, just regular delirium? So delirium in of itself is something that's widely recognized across medicine. There are, it's recognized um, in the DSM-5, which is sort of the uh, Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Various Psychiatric Disorders. Uh, people across specialties sort of learn about um, what delirium is, and we talk about it in our report as well. There are there is an ad, um, a hypoactive and a hyperactive delirium, so people can either be more subdued or people can be a bit more agitated. And there are sort of set criteria for what we consider that is, but above all else. I think delirium is really seen as a description of uh, symptoms that indicate that there's something underlying going on that needs to be investigated. So you can be an elderly woman with a urinary tract infection that presents with delirium. And so the underlying cause of that delirium would be that you have a urinary tract infection that needs to get treated, right? Or you can be delirious because the underlying diagnosis is maybe there is a stroke or, you know, different conditions that sort of cause um, the either the um, hyperactive or the hypoactive symptoms. Um, and comparatively to that, excited delirium um, is not sort of widely recognized. It really um, has been pushed forward by um, the ASAP paper that uh, Dr. Walsh mentioned. Um, but importantly, that's been really advanced by a small group of emergency uh, physicians who have, and even that report, they um, had ties to law enforcement and um, sort of other either law enforcement organizations directly or were paid expert witnesses for um, law enforcement um, companies. And so excited delirium has sort of been tried to push as this distinct, um, different sort of diagnosis. Um, but I think, as uh, Brooks mentioned, it sort of falls outside of what we typically consider delirium in the clinical context, yeah. Yeah, and, and launching right off of that, indeed, like Dr. Saadi says, delirium is a prosaic component uh, of medical uh, evaluation today, um, very accepted. Excited delirium, though, uh, a few other emergency physicians I 
uh, reviewed the 2009 document. Uh, and um, I think we can highlight some of the things that set their description of the entity of excited delirium apart from most other standard medical labels. They use some very interesting language. And I would emphasize that they were aware of all the standard uh, diagnostic uh, schema for delirium and its subtypes, but they wanted to put forth a concept of an entity called excited delirium that uh, relied on a few uh, unique elements, um, superhuman or great strength, um, imperviousness to pain, or even the failure to respond to police presence as uh, was put forth as a diagnostic criterion. Um, there are others. Um, and so those were the elements that have really made it um, problematic as a diagnostic label. Some things that I would add um, to what Dr. Walsh was saying is that really now it really mainly comes up in the context of deaths in police custody. Um, and there was one study that actually found that it was associated with restraint in some 90% of all deaths. Um, but that's not something that's often talked about. So oftentimes people who support this diagnosis, including in the um, ASEP position and paper, they just, they talk about excited delirium being a cause of death on its own, right? Um, without acknowledging one other underlying diagnoses or two, the actions of law enforcement um, that could be contributing to death, so, such as um, neck restraints or knee to neck restraints. Um, so I just mentioned those two things because I think it's really important. I think if there were any other diagnosis that pretty much only came up in, in one specific context, right? And in this context being police custody um, and more often than not with uh, restraints than without restraints, you would be really investigating that environmental context, right? You would say, oh, why are all these deaths only happening in this context? Um, and I think that's been something that's been missing in the conversation about excited delirium as well. So has just not enough research been looked into it or not enough people looking into it? Is there too much, you know, red tape or silent blue line here? I think there has been quite a bit of research and there are a couple different uh, angles to this. Um, like Dr. Saadi was saying, we know clearly that this label is applied uh, disproportionately to African-American populations versus white. And certainly it, uh, fatal cases are more often found in African-American uh, people than in white. Um, so that research, you know, although not, um, not, not, perhaps it lacks some of the details you would want for medical evidence. It's pretty, um, the evidence is consistent across studies and locations and methods. So we know that. I think what my authors and I are contributing to it is that the uh, terms and imagery used to construct the diagnosis um, really uh, reiterate old racial tropes. And whether this is just reinforcing old stereotypes or whether it's uh, 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 provoking new actions um, or both, it isn't clear. Um, 
happy to talk about that part more as well. No, for sure. I mean, when you said like superhuman strength, that raised so many alarm bells in my head. I'm just like, really? Really? <laughs> so that's... No, the, the term superhuman strength is used quite frequently. And although many researchers in the area of behavioral um, people who deal with emer- uh, behavioral emergencies and do good faith research into that uh, subject, um, some of them prefer to say that we don't really call it that, that that was uh, hyperbolic language. But that term continues to be used in um, legal documents, uh, litigation, uh, expert witness testimony, uh, medical documents, and training materials for police and paramedics to this day. Similarly, with the impervious to pain, the the image of the impervious black male continues to be reiterated. And similarly, with the odd language of um, the subject with excited delirium is displaying bizarre or hyper-aggressive behavior. Um, We we talk a little bit about those stereotypes and um, how literature from social psychology suggests uh, the effects this sort of imagery can have on police and medical personnel. I think one of the other elements when I first started looking into this was also how it pathologized resistance to um, police or resistance to restraints, which is really not abnormal for someone who is scared or ill that can actually be a very normal reaction to having law enforcement officers around you or people trying to pin you down or people trying to restrain you. You know, in the hospital, um, sometimes we do resort to restraining people. Typically, that's in the, um, you know, the wrists um, or the legs. Um, but it's normal for people to become um, agitated or even more agitated, right? It escalates oftentimes what people are experiencing. Um, and I think that's another element of this diagnosis. It's important to point out that it um, pathologizes something that can be a normal uh, human reaction, um, per- especially for someone um, who is sick and vulnerable or who might have mental illness. No, that's that's an interesting point. But one thing that I guess I'm not really understanding or that keeps coming up as a point is this whole condition versus diagnosis thing. So uh, tell us exactly what, why is there so much, I don't know, so much ado about calling it a, a condition or a diagnosis? Yeah, you're getting into the philosophy of diagnosis, and that's a ball of wax. <laughs> you know, how is a diagnosis of you know pneumococcal bacteremia different from a different from a diagnosis of bipolar mania? You know, it's um, we by convention, I think physicians have ways of organizing the ways they see patients suffering or presenting. And, you know, it can be, you know, uh, using uh, lab uh, uh, tests to confirm a certain diagnosis or it can use various syndromic descriptions like in psychiatry. But generally, these are, there's a lot of effort to make these somewhat reproducible and um, useful. And uh, excited delirium, whether you call it a syndrome or a diagnosis, or a clinical entity, that's, it isn't established. There's no convention. 
um, it doesn't rise to the standards that we've established in a lot of other areas of medicine. I think Dr. Welsh put it really well about in terms of the reproducibility, which is completely absent in this case. So one person versus another person looking at the same case and coming up with this diagnosis um, or condition, whatever, or, you know, this label. Um, I think the other element is oftentimes this is not something that's determined in the moment. And it's really um, applied when someone has died, unfortunately. Um, so it's sort of applied retrospectively, um, oftentimes because it's a convenient di- diagnosis or label to just throw at a death that has occurred in police custody. And um, when the death has not occurred or someone sort of manages to escape unscathed, oftentimes the, diagno- the diagnosis or label is not applied. And I think that's another element of it that makes it really problematic, right? That it's not actually something oftentimes that's made in the moment because there's no set criteria for you to make it in the moment. Is that part of the reason why the morbidity and mortality with excited delirium is so high? Because the data that we have is people who have died from that? I would say that's sort of an involved question because it, it's sort of... um. Uh, that's self-referential, but um, talking about why there's a high death rate from excited delirium sort of begs the question. What, what, we know that the people have died. What was the cause of death? We don't know if excited delirium has a high rate of death because we're not sure if there's such an entity that corresponds to, say, uh, a syndrome of superhuman strength and hyperaggressiveness. Um, it's really hard to frame a response to the answer because the question isn't the right question. I think. I don't know, Doctor Sadi. No, no, I think I, I struggled with that question too because I, I and it made me go back to that study that we highlight in the report where excited delirium was associated with restraint in some 90% of all deaths, right? So was it actually the excited delirium? Was it actually the restraint or the super aggressive tactics that were used by law enforcement, right? So I think that's what Dr. Walsh is alluding to. It's sort of, um, I think that question uh, assumes that this entity is something that causes death, which we don't even um, know is it's true or can't even validate because you can't disentangle it from uh, the actions of law enforcement. I want to just read an excerpt from the PHR report and we hopefully we can dive into it a little bit more. But uh, you write that PHR holds that excited delirium is a descriptive term of myriad symptoms and signs, not a medical diagnosis, and as such should not be cited as a cause of death. It is essential to end the use of excited delirium as an officially determined cause of death. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit more? Um, One thing I was wondering is, is delirium ever found to be a cause of death? Or is it always the underlying symptom? Is there any parallel here, basically? Yeah, so I think it it, um, would be unusual or unheard of for people to just sort of cite delirium in of itself without talking about what the underlying cause is. Um, and I think that's where um, we sort of try to uh, raise attention to this in the report is we're not saying people don't get agitated. We're not saying that delirium doesn't exist. 
We're just saying that using this label of excited delirium sort of distracts from what's going on. It distracts from uh, law enforcement actions, right, that are uh, violent and sort of disproportionate to what the person might be needing in that moment. And it distracts from their medical needs, right? Um, so I think it goes to this label sort of hides behind um, medically legitimate sounding terminology on the surface, but it actually distracts from a medical approach to the issue, um, which is that we should have medical professionals being the first responders in the situation when someone is mentally ill or having um, a medical issue. And these people need to get treated. One of the examples in the report that we talk about is someone who had the label excited delirium applied to them, but the person was actually in alcohol withdrawal, which is completely, you know, it should not lead to death. And yet this person died and then they had this label applied to them, but we shouldn't be having someone dying from alcohol withdrawal. Um, and if that label is not uh, attached to that person, and instead we give them the label of what's actually medically going on, which is, let's say, alcohol withdrawal, then that person will get the care that they need, um, and we will have prevented a death, which is huge. In the clinical setting, I think one of the arguments that people who believe excited delirium is a you know a condition or a, di a valid diagnosis say well this person comes in in this excited state they're aggravated they're aggressive you can't get an accurate medical history out of them in order to figure out those underlying things so we need this sort of catch-all term how would you respond to that or handle that in a clinical setting uh, dr walsh if you want to go first I see that multiple times a day. Well, maybe not. Multiple times a week, at least. That's our bread and butter. People come in having a really bad day, and you don't know it first. But we wouldn't stop at calling it delirium. That would like being like stopping and calling something this patient is suffering from a high heart rate and leaving it at that. We usually operate in an environment of limited information at first. Unlike Dr. Saadi, who gets all the data she needs while the patient's in the hospital. <laughs> I'm a uh, neurologist, so that's why he says that. We definitely get way more time than emergency uh, department that, physicians. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's inside baseball, sorry. Um, <laughs> but we, 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 we work in limited information. But the priority in that case, in any case, any physician knows, we make decisions at the time with the information we do have, knowing that, um, we have to consider multiple possibilities. We have to control the situation in the moment. And we have to think about the next step and the step after that. How are we going to establish the diagnosis? How are we going to keep the patient safe until we meet that diagnosis? What things will we do just in case, we, you know, just until we know better? This is, uh, we do this in a small form or a large form with almost every patient. No, that's 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 interesting. Uh, so, one thing I'd love for you to kind of explain for our, our readers here, um, because some of them maybe they've heard the term excited delirium, but maybe they don't know that there's just so much you know debate going over it. Uh, could you sum up for us, like, what is the debate here? Are there two sides on this? Um, like, what what is kind of going on amongst like professionals like yourself? I know I can answer from the emergency physician's point of view how they react 
to the discussion. I think other larger issues Dr. Saadi can talk about. Emergency physicians, I, I just talked about the patient who's having a bad day, coming in, acting um, with very florid behavior. Um, we sometimes think that other people don't understand that we're seeing these people who are in extreme distress and that we're having to wrestle with these difficult decision-making situations and keeping the patient and ourselves and our staff safe. And when they hear someone say something like, excited delirium isn't real, what they hear, what we hear is that our experience, our challenges as a physician in that environment is being invalidated. Um, and which really, that, that's not the message. Uh, and why it's sometimes important to really clarify the terms and what we're talking about. Um, so I think most emergency physicians will agree that we want to keep patients safe and we don't want to deliver biased care. We want to, don't want to disproportionately harm communities. I guess the obvious question here that any listener is going to have when it comes to just excited delirium, and I, I want you guys to tell me if it's the right question, if there's a different question that should be asked, but I'm sure anyone who comes across cases of dis- excited delirium who's not an expert like yourself is just going to plainly ask, like, is excited delirium BS? Uh, that's what people are, you know, wanting to know. So is that is that even the right question to be asking? That's a good point to say. Um, I often find discussions with other physicians that start off with, well, are you telling me excited delirium isn't real? I find that it's more productive to reframe the discussion. Um, you know, establish the common ground about the both the, the patients we all see. Um, and when I ask them about what they mean, if they mean um, if they're seeing superhuman strength and impervious to pain, um, do they mean that? Um, and I mean, most of them uh, say that that's not what they're seeing. They see someone who is delirious and needs to be, might need sedation for safety, for the safety of the staff, that they are looking for other causes. Um, I think the, the, uh, the, the, the vagueness of the language um, leads to some confusion around the issue. Um, I'll point to a more productive way that it's been approached. Um, Colorado went through a, a bit of a reckoning in the last two years after uh, the death of Elijah McLean. Um, and there was a lot of outcry from the emergency physician community when, and the uh, EMS community when Colorado um, essentially banned the use of ketamine. Um, we, a lot of emergency physicians, felt that that was the wrong approach, that you were taking away a very useful tool uh, with used properly an excellent safety profile. Um, and there was a lot of uh, angst about the actions of the politicians. However, in the interim, they've come through uh, composing a panel, a medical panel with uh, multiple different medical disciplines represented, a real diverse group of, of researchers and clinicians and other folks to come out with a report about how Colorado is to proceed with, with, with evaluation and treatment of people who are very agitated by EMS. And it's very heartening. Um, the Colorado investigation into the use of ketamine uh, forget the exact name um, they established right off the bat that you know they, they they need to that there is no diagnostic entity of excited delirium that can be used in medicine from now on um, because of the biased language and but they do set forward a new way of approaching these patients 
uh, based on more established uh, evaluation um, and setting expectations for the the medical approach. Um, so I think that it shows that there's a lot of room for uh, uh, real engagement among the medical community, the public. We, we, we can keep patients safe if we move beyond the language of excited delirium. It isn't helping us any longer. I think going back to the idea of whether there is controversy or not, and in my opinion, I actually don't think there's a lot of controversy. Um, I think the controversy that exists is being um, drummed up by people who have conflicts of interest as well as by law enforcement agencies. Um, and so I want to be explicit about that. Um, so even this diagnosis or the term, um, this is one of the things that we highlight in our report. You know, it was initially used by a forensic pathologist. And then one defense uh, expert who was also a forensic pathologist wrote this book, for example, called Excited Delirium. And then Taser International, um, that's now Axon Enterprise, essentially purchased up to 1,500 copies of this book and made it available to forensic pathologists at conferences. Just to give you a sense, there are only about 500 full-time forensic pathologists in the U.S. So they purchased enough copies to cover the entire forensic pathology community multiple times over. And then we see this term being propagated. In the emergency physician um, community, that ASEP report um, that was published in um, 2009, um, did not report any conflicts of interest, even though um, those authors had um, very clear conflicts of interest, either um, working for law enforcement directly or being paid as expert um, uh, witnesses. Um, and, but, and yet that was not mentioned at all. So, I sort of want to push back a little bit on the idea that there is controversy in as much to say that I think there's a huge element of it that is drummed up by people with conflicts of interest um, hired by law enforcement agencies or those agencies themselves. And we can't have the conversation about, quote unquote, a controversy without being very explicit about that. Thank you for being explicit. And I, I would love for you to break that down for us, you know, one, one more time for, for my, my listeners here, just from your perspective, what is the role that the police are playing? And what is either the role or the problem or the place of, of conflict of interest? So I would broaden um, police to law enforcement agencies because Taser International, now Axon, is not directly sort of police, right? I think it is important to be broader than just saying police officers. I think it really is around sort of the systems in place um, that include law enforcement agencies um, as well as uh, companies that sort of profit from um, uh, law enforcement sort of uh, technologies. Um, having said that, I think uh, conflict of interest plays um, a, a role from how the diagnosis itself came about. So the first time the diagnosis was even mentioned in the 1980s was by a forensic pathologist, Dr. Wetley, who was a paid um, uh, expert um, for uh, law enforcement agencies and then later TASER. Um, the ASAP report that law enforcement agencies now often use to support um, 
the use of this label was written by uh, people who were being paid um, either directly by law enforcement agencies or um, including Taser or being paid as expert um, uh, um, witnesses. Um, and we see that the people and those people are sort of pushing that diagnosis. So even um, in our report, we talk about forensic pathologists who, um, let's say, might have um, said that a death happened from the use of a taser and then being threatened with a lawsuit, being saying, you can't say this, we're going to come after you if you do. And so really not allowing for independence when diagnoses uh, are made um, in uh, uh, deaths in police custody. Breaking it down even more for, for, for our listeners here, is it that instead of blaming tasers or, or, or police conduct for these deaths, you have this term, excited delirium, you blame that instead. And, you know, they're kind of pushing, um, 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 the people who are kind of pushing the use of that term are doing such that it, it's benefiting them. Uh, just lay that out for, 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 for me and my readers, uh, me and my listeners again. Yeah, I think um, you said it very well. I think that's essentially what it is, is that we have uh, law enforcement agencies, uh, including uh, Taser International, now Axon, who are pushing um, for the use of this diagnosis um, and have hired physicians and researchers to push for this diagnosis so that it can seem legitimate um, to uh, take away any uh, accountability on the part of uh, law enforcement officers who might be using super aggressive tactics that are out of proportion to what that uh, person needs in, in a time of medical need. Dr. Walsh, did you want to jump in there? Uh, just, no, not about that topic. I just want to come back to what you're talking about. Um, adding to what was discussed before about the controversy around excited delirium, I think maybe it's good to say, just like Dr. Sadi was saying, there actually isn't much of a controversy. We already know that the American Psychiatric Association and the American Medical Associations have come out saying that they don't believe that excited delirium as a diagnostic label is valid. Um, now, a lot of press has been made. Uh, my organization, the American College of Emergency Physicians, which I belong to, has long been characterized as endorsing excited delirium or... Uh, uh, or um, putting out a report which proved it's real. But more and more, the, uh, the college has said that it did not endorse the 2009 report describing excited delirium. And so um, while they haven't made any formal statements, whenever they have uh, uh, rejecting the diagnosis of excited delirium, they have on multiple occasions uh, clarified that they did not endorse the 2009 document, which apparently has been mischaracterized uh, multiple times in, in, over the years. Um, similarly, from reading the PHR report, it appears that the National Association of Medical Examiners doesn't stand behind the diagnosis of excited delirium either in a formal sense. And so we're left wondering, and uh, I think we have We've also heard about another organization in emergency medicine which has come out with a statement against excited delirium. It doesn't appear to be public yet. But we're left saying, is this uh, controversial? More and more medical organizations are rejecting this label. And so, 
As Dr. Saadi was alluding to before, there isn't much of a controversy here anymore. Well, Dr. Walsh, but the 2021 AACP report doesn't completely disavow the 2009 report. It just puts a new label on it, which is hyperactive delirium with severe agitation. So why not just be clear about it? This is not real. I would say actually that report is a, a step in the right direction. Now, I think they're being delicate in a number of ways, but I do think that they're trying to do, describe a different entity. Uh, their language, actually, although they don't credit the psychiatric uh, community, their language is basically lifted from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. There is a delirium hyperactive type with agitation. And if we just use that term, I think we all agree that's a legitimate concern, as long as it falls through with, you know, what is the etiology of this, how best to treat it. Um, they do discuss the use of the label excited delirium by medical examiners still. They do endorse uh, consideration of that label. But in terms of their terminology, I do think that I take it as a good faith effort to um, not merely just change the, the word, but change the diagnosis. I will contrast that with, for instance, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine in the UK just came out with their guidelines for acute behavioral disturbance. They do say this is basically excited delirium and they provide uh, diagnostic criteria which are essentially lifted from the 2009 ASAP document. That is not a good faith effort to describe a different entity. That is merely changing the words. It is a, a trivial semantic change. Uh, I do think the 2021 document from ASAP is um, more technically accurate in that regard. I, I would say, though, that, um, and again, from the Physicians for Human Rights um, perspective in the report that we published, is that we are explicitly calling for a formal disavowal of um, excited delirium by sort of holdout medical professional associations like ASAP. And the reason for that is because that term and this older position uh, paper, right, this older white paper that was published in 2009, is still being used. It's still being used um, by uh, law enforcement agencies, it's used in police trainings, it's used by medical experts um, who will testify and sort of say, look at this document that said this is legitimate. And so we are saying you need to have an explicit disavowal of this term um, because it is still being actively used, right? So you're, um, the, if we really want, um, to be countering the harms that have been perpetuated by the use of this di- this term, um, we need to be really explicit about um, what was done. You know, um, we need to be explicit in saying that um, this terminology shouldn't be used. But is it just the term, or is it just the idea that you know you can use any term as a scapegoat? Exactly. So I, I, I um, think. Thank you for asking that. I, I do think it's we we're not saying that excited delirium should then just be replaced by another label, right? It's sort of a different approach to the whole issue, which is um, recognizing that there are underlying medical issues that need to be worked up and treated first and foremost by medical professionals. 
Yeah, there was a, a controversy in Minneapolis. Perhaps you already read this. A um, couple, a month or two ago, um, it turns out that a physician conducting training for the Minneapolis Police Department um, produced, uh, gave a presentation where he had taken the title of excited delirium and put a uh, strike through and said acute delirium or something. And it was clearly, it was a cheeky uh, effort to make a trivial semantic change in the presentation. No one wants that. And certainly the mayor of Minneapolis didn't want that. You know, just general reporting on this issue, you had both kind of, you know, brought up, you know, headlines and such and whether or not the general public's really getting a good look at what this discussion should be. So what, what do you feel responsible reporting on this issue should look like? I think one element is that the controversy is not really a controversy in as much as the majority of uh, physicians and clinicians don't consider this a, a valid label. Um, I think the other element is um, not to have this conversation without being explicit about the conflicts of interest of people who have been propagating um, this term um, since its inception. Um, and also not to talk about this without um, acknowledging um, the racist history of the diagnosis. Yeah, I guess I'll just try to summarize the three points, which was that I, I think to be explicit about your question about what does responsible reporting look like. So I think one um, is talking about this diagnosis and its racist history to talking about this uh, diagnosis or term um, and its uh, uh, rootedness in conflicts of interest with law enforcement and law enforcement agencies. Um, and three, not to misrepresent this as a bigger controversy than it is. Um, so I think those would be sort of the three points that I would uh, really hit home as uh, needing to be included in every conversation about this. And I think I would say that responsible reporting should emphasize that there is increasingly little to no controversy in medicine proper about excited delirium, and certainly increasing awareness of the harms that come from using this concept. One of the, the last questions that I kind of have in my mind is just talking about like Elijah McLean's particular case. I know you had talked a little bit about that, but could you give us just, I guess, from your expertise, an overview about just what went wrong in terms of the, the, the use of excited delirium? What are your opinions on it? Because it's something that, you know, I found particularly, you know, just shocking. It really, it really, it, it shook me to to my core. But I, I wanted from your perspective in terms of how the term was used. And there was just news that came out looking at, um, I believe, saying that they did say that his cause of death was from, like, how he was being treated at the scene. Uh, I, I think it was a terrible death. Um and as as a former paramedic and emergency physician, it, it is just terrible, and it never should have happened. Um, I will say that a lot was made of the dosing of the ketamine. As an emergency physician, one of the things I really like about ketamine is there's an incredible uh, therapeutic range for the drug. Um, you can give fantastic overdoses. And as long as the patient is properly monitored and properly cared for, 
generally no harm happens. It's an incredibly safe drug, and emergency physicians love it for that reason. The misapplication of excited delirium and the response to it have far more to do with his death than the ketamine. I don't think I have anything sort of specific about that case to add, but I just, your comment or question made me think about the importance of also centering the families who've had family members um, die in um, police custody and who've had um, this label applied to them. So in our report, we um, spoke and highlight interviews and the voices of the Quinto Collins family, um, uh, Angelo Quinto, um, uh, who's a Filipino American Navy veteran who was having a mental health crisis and, um, essentially was responded to by police officers kneeling on his back until he stopped breathing. Um, we talk about Martin Harrison, who I had alluded to Eric earlier, who had alcohol withdrawal and instead of being treated for it, had uh, up to 10 police officers come into his cell, tase him, beat him, um, uh, and essentially was forced into a prone position with officers on top of him, and he died instead of getting treated for alcohol withdrawal. We, in our report, have um, interview from Daniel Prude's brother. We talk about the Elijah McLean case. There are also hundreds of other deaths who've been attributed, um, deaths in police custody that have been attributed to excited delirium. And so I do think I just want to acknowledge uh, and sort of take this opportunity to um, mention some of their names, certainly not all of their names, but I think the importance of um, centering um, their experiences as well, right, of what it means um, to have people who are struggling, right, or suffering from mental illness or other medical issue and not getting um, the medical treatment that they need, oftentimes for preventable uh, medical conditions. Thank you for listening to our bonus episode and for being part of our Color Code community. Our team here at STAT is Alyssa Ambrose, Hyacinth Empinado, Teresa Gaffney, Crystal Milner, and me, Nick St. Fleur. Kevin Seaman is our engineer, Tino Della Merced is our intern, and our theme music is by Brian Joel. Thanks to the Commonwealth Fund for supporting this podcast. If you like the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe. And if you have any thoughts for us, you can reach us at colorcode at statnews.com.